Welcome to Safe Ground, a small organisation with big ideas working in disarmament, human security, climate change and refugees. I'm John Rodstead. Thank you for tuning into our series Stay in Command, where we talk about lethal autonomous weapons, the Australian context and why we must not delegate decision making from humans to machines. Today we're speaking with Paul Barrett. Paul has had a long career in Australia's public service since 1966, but what distinguishes him from many others within government and the public sector is his strong conscience. He's held many senior roles within government, notably within the Department of Trade, Primary Industries and Energy and the Business Council of Australia and Secretary of the Department of Defence from 1998 to 1999. It was his senior role in the Department of Defence that put him at odds with the government's positions and policy. This led him to leaving the public service. Since then, he's had a very strong voice on how and why Australia goes to war and the powers that a few have to commit us to war. He's also one of the founders and current president of Australians for War Power Reform. Welcome, Paul. Morning, John. Originally, you studied physics and graduated with honours from the University of New England. How did you go from serious science to Australia's public service and the Department of Defence? Well, John, throughout my undergraduate career, I was intending to uh, do a PhD in physics and become an academic physicist. And towards the end of my honours year, I read this interesting little advertisement in the Sydney Morning Herald. I sort of had a rush of blood to the head and joined the public service. And that interesting little advertisement said the Department of Defence was looking for people to monitor scientific developments of defence interest in the Asia-Pacific region. So I thought that sounds interesting and I applied for it and months later and security clearances later and what have you, I turned up for work and discovered that the scientific developments of defence interest were China's nuclear program. And so that that launched me on a very interesting uh, couple of years in the intelligence community. And it was a time when China's program really was nascent. They just had their third test when I started. And the Cultural Revolution was just beginning. So uh, it was a very interesting time in Chinese history and in the history of our region. When you entered the Department of Defence in 66, it was right in the early days of Australia entering the Vietnam War. You were in the Department of Defence during the war. How were Australia's policies and actions shaped and and by who? The policy to go into Vietnam was shaped very much by the Prime Minister Menzies himself. And I was in a fortunate position of being just one year too old to be called up in the first draft for Vietnam. But some of my university friends were conscripted and set off to fight in a war that we should never have been in. As a public service insider, you became privy to how policy and decisions were made, and this was not always a fair and honourable process. What kind of things and opinions did they drive Australia towards? Well, if we stick to the uh, defence domain, quite often the real consultative process wasn't around whether or not we should get involved in a war, but how we would get involved. So the Prime Minister would make a decision that we should go off to fight alongside our American ally and then the first thing that would come to Cabinet would be what form will this assistance take? There's too much power in too few hands at the beginning. So it would sort of come down to the US would effectively insist that we entered a war supporting them and as long as the Prime Minister agreed to that, then we were committed. Actually, it's worse than that, John. 
more often we would insist in participating in a war to which the US hadn't invited us. And that was very much the case with Vietnam. We, our government persuaded them that they should have us along. The US military was not particularly enthusiastic because they find it easier to fight alone and feel that they've got the capability to do so. That turned out to be wrongly in most cases, but they feel they can do it. But the American political system likes to have some extra flags on the poles to show that they're involved in a major coalition. But the same thing happened with Iraq and Afghanistan. John Howard volunteered us into those wars. The Americans didn't ask us. With any dissent that may be either within government or within parliament, how are those voices then heard? Well, with great difficulty, there's unlikely to be dissent within government when the threshold decision's already been made. Backbenchers will feel that if we're off the war, their job is to support the government and support the, the troops in the field. And when the first contingents went off to Iraq, Simon Crean, the then opposition leader, leading a party that was opposed to the war, took very great care to distinguish between being opposed to the war, but on the other hand, wishing the troops all the best. We support our troops in harm's way, but we don't think we ought to be there. But that's a pretty difficult thing to navigate. And as for Parliament, that depends on whether the government permits the matter to be debated at all. We committed ourselves to Afghanistan in uh, 2001, and the very first parliamentary debate on Afghanistan was in Julia Gillard's time. You're a strong advocate for changes on how we go to war. You helped form and chair the Australians for War Powers Reform. What's the organisation and what do you want to see change? The organisation had its origins in something that uh, in 2012 we called the Campaign for an Iraq War Inquiry. Our first objective was to get something like the Chilcot Inquiry that was going on in the UK to find out how the decisions were made and uh, what could be learned from that process. But our real aim was to use this as a case study in why the power to deploy the ADF into international armed conflict ought to be relocated in the parliament. We, we expected, and we knew a lot about how the decisions had been made or were able to infer a lot by research and putting various bits and pieces together. But we wanted an open public inquiry which would demonstrate that our decision-making processes were flawed and that it was too dangerous to leave it in the hands of a very small number of people. And so now what we want is to relocate the power to send the Defence Force any kind of armed conflict to be relocated to the Parliament, a decision only taken when the Parliament, and in our view, both Houses have assented to that. If you take the decision away from the Prime Minister, remove the so-called captain's call, wouldn't it take too long to respond to any threats in a real time frame? Uh, no, that's a great great misapprehension. Most of the Australian Defence Force, quite rightly, is held in a pretty low state of readiness. So it's, it's training and doing practice manoeuvres and what have you, but to get your equipment into, into a fighting state, it, it requires a lot of preparation. For example, when we went to Timor, Admiral Barry and I advised the National Security Committee of Cabinet in February 1999 that we ought to get ready to have the option to deploy to Timor uh, as that plebiscite was looming because we could see that there might be a uh, breakdown of the situation there. They were finally ready to deploy in September. So it took us seven months and the expenditure of almost $300 million to get everything 
really uh, up to scratch and to get the commanders at various levels used to uh, commanding operations in the field at that kind of level. So we have a ready reaction force in Townsville, which is basically a battalion and uh, associated elements. And I would be quite happy to say, to, to have a framework in which anything that the ready reaction force could handle could be done on the decision of the government, because that would be a, an emergency type situation. But anything that required a larger deployment ought to be debated and authorised in Parliament. If the decision had to go through Parliament, couldn't it get held up by minor parties or in the Senate or whatever, just people being divisive because they can, playing politics with the decision? That's an argument we often hear. If there was any genuine threat that any major political party would be opposed to the deployment, and of course, any situation in which the ALP agreed with the government or the coalition agreed with the ALP, depending on who's in government, if the major opposition party agrees with government, the minor parties have no role at all. So that concern sounds to me like a concern that it might be difficult for the government to engage in wars of choice. And of course, that's the whole point. And I suppose that separates it perfectly between threat and adventure. That's right. One, you've you actually got to respond for a real threat that's threatening Australia and Australia's interests, and the other is getting involved in an adventure that's got nothing to do with us. Absolutely. And uh, that would be the separation. To put it brutally, I would say to government of either side, if you can't persuade the opposition that our national security interests are really engaged here, we ought not to go. So if the party that was in power that had government uh, at the time had access to secret intelligence that they can't talk about, how would they deal with this? Oh, there's a couple of ways you could deal with that. that that's an argument we often hear, and it's sometimes it's a bit hard to keep a straight face when t people talk about that when we reflect back to the WMD in Iraq that turned out not to exist and everybody knew they didn't exist. Hans Blix, the, the United Nations weapons inspector, certainly knew they didn't exist. But let's take your question at face value. There's a couple of things you could do. What we do right now is, in any national security situation, the government will brief the leader of the opposition in private and in secret. That happened in relation to operations in Syria. You could have a, uh, a proper national security and intelligence kind of committee of, in the parliament in which those members of the committee were security cleared to receive all the information that's available so that you would have all parties involved in uh, looking at the available evidence and they could go into the parliament and say, well, we've seen the intelligence and we're convinced. It's rare that secret intelligence is the only thing you've got. Very often there is information in the public domain as well. In fact, I think most intelligence agencies should devote more effort to uh, analysis of what's in the public domain because you can learn a lot from that. An option that would always be available to government would be to say, hear what you're seeing in the public domain and uh, simply with, without elaboration say our secret intelligence bears out what we've concluded from the open source material. So if there's a will to do it this way, you can certainly find a way to navigate your way through that real difficulty of how you handle secret intelligence. The secret intelligence effectively just becomes a confirmation of what is a greater information stream. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of support have you had uh, for your organisation's aims and ideals and where should it go from here? We've had support from various members of various parties and a lot of public support. And I'll come back to the public support. 
The most tangible support we've had from a political party is a resolution that was passed on the floor of the ALP's National Congress in uh, 2018 in Adelaide when there was a vote on the floor that an incoming Labor government would establish an open public parliamentary inquiry into how we go to war. And I think that was a very positive step. I think it's a very good way for a political party to get into it because they're not pre-committing themselves to change the way we go to war, but they're committing themselves to establish the facts. It would give those who are seeking a change the opportunity to put their case and it would put the people who dismiss it in, through the various arguments that we've just discussed, they would have to defend it in that kind of forum. So we, we would end up with a more honest debate. Another element that these people will tend to use to argue against us is that it really wouldn't make any difference because everyone would just vote on party lines. What I would say in, in such a parliamentary inquiry, I think you would find that being asked to take responsibility for something that would involve death and destruction on both sides, uh, putting the young men and women of the ADF into harm's way and inevitably involving civilian casualties, you would end up with something that looks very much like a conscience vote. I don't think you can assume that everybody would vote uh, on party lines. If we have a parliamentary inquiry, we can flush all these arguments out. I'd like to see that commitment find its way into the ALP platform, but I very much hope that an incoming Labor government, such time as that happens, would proceed along that, uh, those lines. Our movement would like to persuade all major political parties that this is a desirable change. But once one's on board, I think it'll be easier to get the others on board. You've had some pretty good support from some fairly major players within the Australian government and former Australian Defence. Can you talk a little about the opinions of some of the others who are involved in your organisation and why they think it's a good idea to change the threshold for going to war and the captain's call? Well, I think we're unanimous in feeling that the responsibility for this ought to rest with the federal parliament and it ought to be debated and fully thought through. One of the things that doesn't happen when it's just decided by cabinet or by the prime minister is a proper analysis of the legality of going to war. And what, what we would all like to see is before Parliament takes a decision that the Attorney General or Solicitor General tables a formal written opinion about uh, the legality of this war because the best legal opinion about the Iraq war is that it was illegal and no one takes very seriously the reliance that we had on very old UN Security Council resolutions that were passed for another purpose. So apart from in our movement, we've had people like former Chief of Army saying that this move ought to take place. Can we shift the discussion a little towards the, the current arms race that's starting to get going, which is the development of killer robots? Just the talk of killer robots sounds like a bad dream, but they're real and governments worldwide are developing and investing in them. What do you understand these to be and how would they be deployed in the battlefield, for that matter, into urban environments? Well, I think the word robot conjures up in the public mind things that might move along the ground and have maybe have arms and legs. But what we're really talking about is any kind of lethal autonomous weapon. And uh, that very often would be a more advanced form of armed drone that would have its own decision-making capability. And that would take human agency out of the decision to launch a lethal strike. Now, it gets a little bit fuzzy because I was reading this morning 
someone from the US Army talking about the progress they're making with them, and they're saying that they'll never take human agency out of making the decision. But they're saying the way these drones, the way these weapons work, you have a collection of sensors that will bring a lot of data together and then uh, make a recommendation. And that recommendation would include which weapon located where would be the best to use for this purpose. Now, this US Army spokesman was talking about reducing decision-making time from the census to someone pressing some button from 20 minutes to 20 seconds. 20 seconds doesn't sound to me like a lot of time for someone to make a considered decision to launch a lethal attack on someone. So the word meaningful comes into it. You've got to have meaningful human intervention, not just the fact that a human being is somewhere in this highly automated chain. And the importance of human beings being in it is that you've got to make some very important decisions about who's to be attacked, is this attack militarily necessary, and is it proportionate to what has happened or what you think is about to happen. I would have no faith at all in the ability of people to program an autonomous weapon to make those decisions without the potential for great risk and tragedy. I think you hit on something very poignant there, which is reducing the response time from 20 minutes to 20 seconds, which would bring the decision down to an operator who would take it away from a commander. It would take it away from someone who is in charge of a force and bring it down to someone who is the button pusher sitting behind a console somewhere. It would also reduce the legal framework in the decision-making process. Would that be correct? Yeah, exactly. It gets harder and harder to say who is responsible under international law for the fact that these innocent people got killed. I think illustrate the difficulty both with the delegation of authority and also with the discrimination. I remember uh, a case that was probably 10 years ago in Afghanistan where a group of Afghan villagers from a remote village were killed by someone operating a joystick in Tampa, Florida, an area under surveillance with an armed drone. There was a group of Afghan villagers coming down from a remote village to the nearest sort of uh, local town. And they left before dawn for what was a long journey and there were four or five guys in the back of a, of a utility and someone driving. And halfway through the journey, a young man in Tampa blew them all away with an armed drone. Turned out they're just completely innocent bunch of visitors. One was going to visit the local doctor and one was going to get a prescription filled at the pharmacy and they did this sort of. And he was asked, why did you press a button? Oh, because I could tell they were terrorists. How did you know they were terrorists? Because when the sun came up, they all got their prayer mats out of the back of the utility and facing Mecca and prayed. So therefore I knew they were terrorists. And there's two things about that. Even with the considered human intervention, the human being, made a catastrophic error of judgment because he didn't know enough about the local culture. And secondly, how would you program an autonomous weapon not to make that mistake? And I just don't believe that it can be done. And we've seen lots of tragedies in places like Iraq and Afghanistan where a wedding party got blown away because people started firing their rifles in the air when once the couple was united in holy matrimony, whoopee, let's all fire our rifles in the air and someone blows them away because they're firing rifles. The old saying in the IT industry about garbage in, garbage out, what these drones do autonomously will very de much depend on the knowledge and skill of the people that are programming them. 
I think that hits on a point of uh, how do they identify who is the so-called enemy on a battlefield? Because, yes, I can see they can identify who the friendlies are. It's pretty easy to put a marker on your own troops, whether, you know, whatever that may be, infrared or whatever. You could have some form of marker so you'd see your own layout of the battlefield. But then all that does is say that everything else down there living is the enemy. Civilians, combatants, lock, stock, and uh, I, I, I can't see how they would be able to segregate the two. Neither can I, and we all await the, the Brereton report on Afghanistan, but I think what you've seen in Afghanistan, my guess, is that you've seen people who are weary after almost 20 years of fighting of not very clearly in a situation where you don't really know who the enemy is. A farmer standing in his field may be uh, a genuine farmer standing in his field. He may also have a rifle at his feet about to get you, but he may be a very innocent person just going about his normal business and you have to decide whether to uh, kill him or leave him alone. And I just cannot see that autonomous weapons are going to be an advance. There was an interview recently with Dr Lizzie Silver, who's an AI developer, and the one thing that she really pointed out was how messy and how incapable AI is, is when AI starts competing against other AI, artificial intelligence, it just turns into an algorithm mess that comes up with no really functional solutions to it. And her point was that by the very nature, unless you've got a, a human to pull it and go, hang on, this is going turning into nonsense, yeah. that the AI will actually go down a path where it's always trying to achieve its goal, but its goal might not be achievable. So yeah. it just turns into an absolute uh, soup. Yep. But then I suppose it brings us to the point of whether these things are hackable or not and, and what would be the look if somebody then manages to hack into your system? Well, it would be a brave person who would insist that anything is not hackable. Recent history is full of people, full of things that are either information that's been released via hacks and we know that all of the world's leading powers are looking at how to hack each other's IT-driven systems, you know, their electric power system and all sorts of other things. All you can ever do is say that we can't think of any way to hack it. Typically, or very often, you employ former hackers to try to hack your system just to see if there's a way around it. But uh, it would be very complacent to say, uh, I've produced something that's not hackable. It seems that they're starting to invest in the development of this kind of technology and what it's really going to start is a new arms race. That would be expensive and I could imagine a situation where almost annually you're shoveling a lot of your GDP into buying upgrades, buying new weaponry to counter the redundant weaponry that you had a year earlier. This would put on a country like Australia, it would put a lot of stress on the Australian purse and to what we've got to spend on what should be the expenditure of government, education, health, whatever. Have you got some comments about how Australia has got involved in arms races at our level, not on a US level, but on an Australian level? I don't think we've had a lot of experience of it because for most of the post-war period, our defence force operated at a higher technical level than our neighbours. I don't think that's the case anymore. But whenever we've uh, put an emphasis on self-reliant defence capability, we've just defined what we think we need to be able to do, which basically boils down to control the air and sea approaches to Australia. That puts you into an implicit arms race in that as, as people's capability to come our way increases, we might have to do more to be able to, to be in control. 
I think we're now in a situation where um, we're probably in a, certainly in an air combat arms race. We committed ourselves 20 years ago or almost 20 years ago to the joint strike fighter, the F-35. And uh, I've had people tell me that the uh, Russian sourced equipment that other neighbouring countries are using is more capable than that. So we might be in an arms race anyway. With the Prime Minister having the sole responsibility at present to commit us to war, does that also put the sole responsibility on the cost of going to war in the hands of the Prime Minister? It's that person who decides that we're going to spend a lot of our national treasure on going to a war. Or does that get checked by the House of Reps? In practice, it puts it in the hands of the Prime Minister because whilst the Constitution provides that you can't spend any federal government can't spend any money that hasn't been appropriated by the parliament. You can never envisage a situation in which the prime minister would commit us to combat and the parliament would refuse to vote the money because that would leave the troops high and dry. So once we're at war, the parliament basically has to get dragged along funding whatever executive government says it needs to sustain that combat. The military, by its very nature, is always in the business of, I suppose, force modification, acquiring weapons that are going to give it sort of more bang for its buck. If we went down the path of building an arsenal of lethal autonomous weapons, do you think the very fact that we had them that would create our threshold to be combative would be less? And I'm not talking from a prime minister's perspective. If you're a commander in the field and you've got stockpiles of, say, artificial intelligence drones at your disposal, would that make your decision-making to engage a lower threshold or a higher threshold? I think it would be a lower threshold. Once we've got them in our inventory, they would come to be used and it would be very hard for anyone in the civilian space, you know, like our political leaders or anyone else, to tell the Chief of the Defence Force not to use weapons that, in his military judgement, the troops needed to get themselves out of a hole or, or to achieve what they've been sent to achieve. And I guess it brings us into the discussion about proportionality. And there's a number of benchmarks with proportionality in in weapons. A couple off the top of my head would be the poison gas after World War I, where we saw what a nightmare that created to people who were gassed. The convention was created in, I think, 1925. Then the other one would be blinding laser weapons from, I think, 1992, which had the ability to blind anybody on a battlefield. And that technology was beaten before it was ever deployed in war. And the two pragmatic ones would be the Landmines Treaty of 1997 and the Cluster Bombs Treaty of 2008. We do have a history of looking back or even looking forward in the case of the blinding laser weapons and choosing to either eliminate a functional weapon system or stop one that got started before it was deployed. I guess it comes down to the thing of having a prime minister or ministers or decision makers who don't just get seduced by the latest, greatest technology that's being offered up on a plate. And uh, this would probably be autonomous weaponry. What you say is true, but the dilemma that would face a government is that if these are not outlawed and other people are getting them, are we forced to respond? And, of course, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty was drawn up to avoid that kind of situation, that, that as these things spread, other people feel obliged to equip themselves with those as a deterrent. So by far the best option that I can see for an Australian government is to campaign very vigorously for these things to be outlawed. That would no doubt cause some uh, friction with our allies in the United States who, by the way, are not parties to the Cluster Munitions Treaty. The United States refuses to have anything outlawed 
as it applies to the United States. But nevertheless, I think we should be uh, campaigning to have these things outlawed and hence not equipping ourselves with them. So in the case of uh, the use of lethal autonomous weapons, what would you imagine some of the scenarios of a failed strike could look like if someone deployed these and where could that go wrong? Well, it could go wrong in almost any conceivable way. But typically, the algorithm goes wrong and you uh, attack people who ought not to be attacked, including perhaps friendly forces. And also, of course, what if the weapon was hacked and turned back on us? Or uh, if you just fail to complete the tasks? You go into this business assuming that this very, very complex and sophisticated piece of equipment will work perfectly. Imperfection could lead to all sorts of failures, including uh, damage to your own side. That brings us to a lot of arms manufacturers who would love to have manufacturing of lethal autonomous weapons because it's going to provide them a continual stream of investment that every year someone has to go and buy the upgrade or get the replacement technology. And, and from a share market perspective and from a corporate perspective, that would be quite attractive although it wouldn't be terribly attractive on the ground. I suppose that's another risk that we'd be stepping into. No, and I don't think either our national or the international approach to weapon systems ought to be driven by the interests of the arms manufacturers. I think we come to national and public interest first and see the interests of arms manufacturers as subordinate to that. You know, your origins came from the study of physics and uh, university, and universities are always looking to solve technological problems, and that's part of the greatness of university is these brilliant young minds have got problems and they, they take them on and, and they create function out of the ether, really. It's extraordinary stuff. Should the universities be looking at limiting what they do with lethal autonomous weapons or at least with the various platforms that would be employed in this technology? I think so. I mean, we don't expect our uh, universities to be doing research on biological weapons or chemical weapons, uh, except possibly for strictly defensive purposes. I can see a role for universities to examine how you might defend yourself against these things. And certainly for uh, people in the sort of arms control kind of space in universities to be thinking about how you establish an effective regime that, that outlaws such weapons. But to have our uh, universities go into developing these things or some aspect of them with their ears pinned back, I think it'd be a very bad idea. It sort of separates it into two spaces. One would be about technological development, you know, getting out and doing the software and, and working out what the platforms are. And the other would be the ethical side. The ethical investment would be overriding the technological investment. Yeah, uh, our efforts should be directed to the, the ethical side of this issue, not the technical side of it, except to the extent that we need to understand the technology in order to defend ourselves from it. Do you think these are a step too far or there is a space somewhere within the defence landscape uh, for them? I think they're a step too far. When it comes to killing people, you've got to have people not only in theoretical control but in effective control and uh, accountable for the decisions they make. Trusting the Prime Minister in the past or the present or the future to make the right call going to war. Do you think they have in the past or they would in the future? Is that a decision-making perspective that is trustworthy or 
Should so, there be something else? Well, we've seen in Vietnam, Afghanistan and Iraq, we've seen the, uh, the Prime Minister of the day make the wrong decision. We also saw Tony Abbott make a decision to extend our operations in northern Iraq against ISIL, to extend those operations into Syria. And we saw him talking about putting a battalion into uh, Ukraine, for God's sake, to secure the uh, site of the crashed aircraft. I don't think you can rely on prime ministerial decision-making at all. And I should mention that Malcolm Fraser was, while he was alive, was the patron of our organisation. And he, he argues that a prime minister is always going to get his way in cabinet if it's something he really wants. And it's too easy uh, for a, a small group like that to get involved in groupthink and not think it right through. Just, you know, we've had a busy morning and it's lunchtime, you know, let's, let's make this decision, get out of here or uh, just simply uh, listen to what the Prime Minister have to say and say, yes, Prime Minister, that's fine, uh, and not really unpick it. Uh, no, I would not trust any Prime Minister to make the right call. So it really sounds like we're getting to a step too far, and uh, at the moment there is work on the development, hopefully, of a treaty, and things might come to a head next year, let's hope so. Paul, thanks so much for your time, and thanks for joining us uh, with Safe Ground, and, and good luck with getting some changes to the way Australia gets committed to go to war. My pleasure, John. Thank you very much. If you'd like to know more about Paul Barrett's work with Australians for War Powers Reform, please visit their website, www.warpowersreform.org.au. If you want to know more, look for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, Australian Campaign to Stop Killer Robots, or use the hashtag Ospan killer robots. Become part of the movement so we stay in command. Thank you for listening. Please share with your friends. For access to this and other episodes, along with a full transcription and relevant links and more information, head to safeground.org.au forward slash podcasts. You've been listening to Safe Ground with me, John Rodstead. Our podcasts come to you from all around Australia and we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners throughout their continuing connection to country, land, waters and culture. Stock audio provided by Vidivo, downloaded from www.vidivo.net. Thanks for listening to Safe Ground.